Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Energy Newsbeat podcast. My name's Stu Turley and uh, President and CEO of the Sandstone Group. We've got a fantastic show today. We not only have some legends, we have industry thought leaders and authors on this show today. We have Meredith Angwin. She is an author and I have had the pleasure of having her on the podcast before. I'm a gigantic fan of Meredith. She has her book called Shorting the Grid. And if you remember the podcast that she was on, I was holding the book up, all the yellow tabs and everything else. And Meredith is a rock star. Welcome, Meredith. Well, thank you for having uh, me on the show. And I'm really especially pleased to be here with Robert Bryce is here because he's a hero of mine. Oh, absolutely. Coming around the corner, we have the Robert Bryce. I mean, not just a Robert Bryce. We have the Robert Bryce. Robert Bryce is an author, public speaker, world traveler. I got a few other things to say in here, but there's too much uh, hugging going on. I I'm a true fan of both of you, and I want to tee this conversation up. We want an organic, fun conversation. There's so much to talk about, but I love the interaction that you all do on LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, all of the other things. You are true industry thought leaders, and I think the only way to get through our energy and financial crises around the world is by education. And you are both the folks that are really doing it right out there talking about everything. So thank you guys for stopping by. Thank you. Well, for I, I need to lie down after that introduction here. Yeah, um, me too. <laughs> as, as, as one British guy, I was a British military guy a few years ago. He had this flowery introduction and he said, well, thank you for that introduction. It's one that my mother would have believed when my father would have appreciated. <laughs> but you know, Robert, if the truth is there, when Meredith is speaking the truth and when you're speaking the truth on your podcast and I get I'm hooked on your daily show when you're out there, not your, your updates, Robert, you're traveling the world and you're giving us updates about that. I, I'm sorry. Tell us about your last trip. That was really cool. It was. Well, sure. Um, well, I, I think you're talking about Japan. I've been in Oshkosh. Yes. I was in Oshkosh, Wisconsin last week and Louisville. And before that was that, a great one on your Substack on EarthX uh, at EarthX last or the week before. But uh, Japan was fascinating, and uh, I'll just re you know I'll acknowledge Meredith as well. Eric, uh, Meredith's been on my podcast, the Power Hungry Podcast, five times uh, because I'm a great admirer of hers and talk to her about. I mean, she is the acknowledged expert on uh, RTOs and grid operations in the U.S., and I want to talk about that because I think these are the you know the electric grid is the key issue, it's the key network now that is being fragilized by a, a lot of bad policy. Japan trip, thank you, uh, was fascinating. I was there for two weeks. Uh, a couple of quick observations. One is that Japan. Japan is slowly going back to nuclear. And, you know, as Japan has a very uh, complex history with nuclear energy, I'll put it that way. And about nine weeks ago, in fact, nine weeks ago today or yesterday, I was at Fukushima Daiichi at the power plant and wow. saw the ruined reactors. And it really did affect me and acknowledged or made me understand what the devastation was for the nuclear plant. And that was important. But Robert, to, you said it affected you. Did you get radiated and that's why you're glowing? No, no. I mean, I think that it, it showed me that the radiation levels still are very, you know, they're, they're, they're I, I'll say, it, I think the Japanese way overreacted in terms of even today about the managing the radiation levels at the plant. And they clearly overreacted in terms of the evacuation, which was the bigger problem than anything that was radiation related. But wow. my point, but two things. One is, 
the Japanese utilities, and there are only nine or 10 of them, are going back to nuclear and investing for the future. And I think that's really remarkable. The close knit, you know, the close ties between the Japanese government and industry are well known, but they are going long nuclear. That is very clear. The other point is just, and I'll make this and then I'll stop, but uh, for a moment anyway, but it's that, you know, Japan, for all of the fact that it's the home of Kyoto Protocol and the rest of it, they are not chasing climate change goals. They are seeking energy security. Um, they are building a coal plant in the middle of Tokyo. Uh, TEPCO, the company that owns Fukushima wow. Daiichi, is finishing a, a, an a ultra supercritical coal plant in the heart of Tokyo, 1.3 gigawatts. So they are energy security is their paramount concern. And so for all of the talk in the U.S. and elsewhere around the world, Japan is going to take care of Japan and they are their industrial policy. The rest of it, they're building gas fired power plants, coal fired power plants. They're slowly restarting their nuclear plants. But, you know, this idea that we're going to have some international agreement on climate change and the rest of it, there's no evidence of that in, in Japan. None. Wow. Now, they don't have natural gas, do they? They they're have to import. They're, they're, they're building uh, LNG power plants. They're, they're LNG oh. import and LNG uh, gas-fired power plants. They're importing it. Yeah. They don't yes. have their own. I think that's the... And it, some, some of the imports come across the Arctic from Russia. Yeah, yeah. Yep, they're, that was my next they're point. One of, they're one of the biggest. They're one of the biggest LNG importers in the world, and will be for some time to come. You know, they're competing for gas with China, and you know, of course, Pakistan has fallen out of the game, but Korea, South, you know, Asian countries across Asia, and now particularly uh, as well as as Europe. Oh, you bet. Now, um, Meredith, as you bring that up, we I, I think that the you know our belief, and and again for everything that I've re read is. I would like to see the lowest kilowatt per hour delivered to everybody on the planet with the least amount of impact on the environment. All right. So that means that you must let the markets decide. And that means you got to use nuclear, means you got to use natural gas. You got to use uh, oil and gas to get the uh, net transition done. Carbon capture is going to be a lot of fun. But you know, you're still going to need renewables in certain areas and, and things if the market decides. Energy policies are nuts right now. It seems like permitting is a real problem. And then policies. I want to lob this out to you two because, uh, Meredith, we were just chit-chatting beforehand and energy policies are tough. Well, energy policy, I, in, in, the, in shorting the grid, I, I talk about two, I say that there are two grids. There's a physical grid, which is how the uh, electricity gets to your house and somebody makes it and it gets to your house. And then there's the policy grid. And the policy grid can be described as many things. But one of the most important things is how the different kinds of plants get paid and, and how, how, how secure their payments are, because the security of their payments is what makes people continue to invest in them. I mean, if you heard that you could invest in something which would make $1,000 profit for you one hour a year, and the rest of the time it wouldn't make any profit, you probably wouldn't do it. You'd probably prefer to invest in something that makes a small profit every hour. You know, uh, and, and even if they added up to the same amount, the, if you looked at the one hour a year, you'd think, what if it doesn't happen this year? You know, so basically the uh, subsidies for renewables have really distorted what's going on in the market. And I didn't want to admit that because one of the things that was when I began writing the book, the thing that was really front and center for me was how the um, auctions were distorting the market. And then I thought, you know, uh, how the auctions, you know, the 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 price of the next kilowatt hour. Well, what about 
having to build the plant. If Well, if it's an expensive plant, but the next kilowatt hour is cheap, then it only gets paid for that kilowatt hour. And, and so the, it never gets to, uh, there was something called the search for the missing money among the plants because there was no a way to recoup the money for building the plant. Well, at any rate, as I began writing it, I thought, you know, if you don't mention the effect of renewables on the grid, you won't be telling the truth. So I did it. Uh, but I just kind of pulled myself into the very many very difficult effects that the renewables have on the grid. The fact that they're subsidized, the fact that they they drive more reliable generators out of business, the fact that uh, the only thing that can back them up really is uh, uh, um, is uh, natural gas because steam plants are steam plants can load follow coal and oil, coal and, and nuclear can load follow, but they can't come up to speed as quickly as the wind can die down. You see, that's a different thing than load follow. And so anyway, yes, the, the policy grid has been actually uh, pretty much ruined our reliability. And, 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 and the most important thing a grid can have is reliability, because if it doesn't have that, everything else, inexpensive, whatever, uh, it's not going to be helpful. It's not going to work. Oh, uh, absolutely. And Robert, you you talk a lot about permitting and everything else. You guys were just quoted in the Cowboy State uh, Daily. I love the Cowboy State Daily. I read that every day. I want to give them a shout out. If nobody's following them, they need to. But Robert, what do you think about permitting? Should we change? Well, let me let me just follow a little bit on what Meredith is saying about the reliability issue, because oh. a friend of mine put it this way. He said, if it's not reliable, if the electricity is not reliable, it's not affordable. And so what have we seen on the electric grids across the country in the last few uh, years? Well, Generac sales are skyrocketing. Remember, Generac has been one of the best performing stocks. Now it's cooled off some, right? But there has been a boom in home generator sales. Well, why is that? It's because people are looking at the grid and saying, I don't want to be blacked out. And so who's buying the Generacs? Well, generally... Their average, uh, on average, their own their own their own documents say their average customer has a household income of one hundred and forty thousand dollars a year. That's twice the national average. So mm-hmm. that to me is a very clear point about well, who gets hurt by blackouts? Who gets hurt the most by expensive right. electricity? By unreliable power? It's the poor, right? So there is a class element to all of this that I think is absolutely essential to keep front and center because what we are seeing is particularly in California, which is the poster child for bad energy policy of all kinds. <laughs> <laughs> Electric rates have risen more, have risen faster in California than any other state in the United States. I wrote about this on my Substack, robertbrice.substack.com. Make sure and sign up. It, it was a great article, by the way. That California's electric rates have gone up faster than any other country, any other state in the United States since 2008, when when uh, Governor Schwarzenegger signed into law this mandate requiring a third, you know, the state get a third of the utilities get a third of their electricity from renewables, and they've ratcheted it up since then. But this is all hammers the poor and the middle class, all of it, and that is not being discussed in the elite policy circles, the academics, the Princeton crowd, the Stanford crowd, the Cal Berkeley crowd. That's you know their fancy models. Well, we can do all this. Well, yeah, you can, but at extraordinary cost. To the consumer, right. because the electricity is less reliable, less affordable, and less resilient. 
I, I, I often say could is a, like a, the equivalent of a four letter word, because basically <laughs> could the people are saying, oh, we could do this. We could do this. And, and the example I use uh, to make it really simple is that um, I live near the Connecticut River and uh, I live on the Vermont side and the other side is the New Hampshire side. And uh it's a good sized river and uh, there are bridges across it, uh, sometimes as close together as four miles and sometimes uh, far apart as 13 miles. We could build a bridge every two miles. We know how to build bridges. We could do it. It would just be incredibly wasteful. But the thing is that somebody's going to say, if we want to save gas, we don't want to have all these people driving eight miles to get to the bridge. So let's build a bridge every two miles. We could do it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Meredith, that's used, a great point. You, we could used... go all electric on the vehicles in the military, kind of like what was said this. Was it this week with uh, our? It was a stunning. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine a tank with a solar panel? <laughs> the Abrams Abrams weighs 60 tons. How many solar panels would you need on that? Uh, that is funny. You know, it's I'd never heard you use that bridge analogy, uh, Meredith, about, well, we could build this many bridges across the river because then everybody would be able to cross the river more easily. But I, I mean, to drive this home, I mean, what the other part here, Stu, that I think is critical to understand is that we're in the grips of this renewable energy fetish. And I think that that is the right word that the, you know, that building more wind and solar capacity this is the fetish that is being promoted by the biggest NGOs in America, and and I don't call right. them client, I don't call them in, environmental groups because they are anti-environment. I think in many cases, but this this fetish is being driven by, and let's get back to the policy grid where Meredith has been and written so much is being driven by this massive. I mean, a neutron bombs of cash that are Congress is dropping on the wind and solar industry. We're talking about over two hundred and fifty billion dollars in tax credits that are available to the wind and solar crowd between now and twenty thirty, and they there is a land rush on in rural America to try and build these projects uh, because these companies, many of them, some of the biggest companies in America, including Mid-American Energy, part of Berkshire Hathaway, Next Air Energy, are in a mad rush to build all this stuff because if they don't build it, they don't get paid. So yes. the incentives, right. as, as Meredith has pointed out many times, the incentives are 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 distorting our grid and making it less reliable, less affordable, less resilient. Oh yeah, and you know, uh, Meredith uh, and Robert, great points. Um, I'm I'm just so excited because I love talking energy and you guys. Um, but you know, when you were bringing up renewables, Meredith, in your book, you were talking about the factor of twenty percent to uh, build out your grid and you build out 20% for uh, resilience of having a power plant down or an emergency. And then when, as soon as you add renewable, it's 200%. And so yeah. all, all of a sudden, when you're putting in one megawatt wind turbine, you get, uh, then you got to actually buy another 190 of them or 99 of them in order to get the same production capabilities. And then it's still wind. Yeah. I've been doing a you don't get the same production capabilities because the wind dies down. Exactly. You know, you I've been get, doing a, what it boils down to is I, I, I look at it is that if you, you had a sort of a perfect system, you would have uh, one turbine, you would have renewables that could carry the entire load uh, when their load was high. Then you'd have another set of renewables doubling them which would be able to charge up some um, uh, resource that they could store, like a battery, right. 
okay, some storage, and then you have the battery, which has to be able to carry uh, the same load. So in other words, if you have a regular system, uh, which we have now, you build 120% of what you'll need at, at peak uh, requirement. With a all renewable plus storage system, you're going to have to build 300%. Now, if you have careful uh, modeling, you might say, oh, you won't have to build a complete 300% because you can be putting some of the stuff in the storage even when there's not um, a, a, a 100% renewable available. You can Anyway, you could play some games and get it down to 250 or 280% of what you need. But, but basically, if you, for a first cut, just look at it three times. One to run it, one to back it up, and one to st- be storage. Wow. And, and it's a critic, if I can put an ad on that, Stu, because it's yeah. a really critical point that Meredith is making, and it's important to put it into historical context. So from the days of Edison and Insel, who were the great pioneers in American yep. uh, the history of American uh, electricity, as long as... Uh, along with uh, Frank Sprague, who's my personal hero and a, one of the great underappreciated inventors in American history. You only made the grid as large as you absolutely had to, because if you overbuild it, you waste money, right? So there was right. always the effort to, was to like, right-size the grid. You didn't want extra generation. And now this is part of the hair-brainedness of this current regime that we're facing, as Meredith ably pointed out. We're going to, you know, today we have about 1.2 terawatts of generation capacity. These schemes that are being promoted by, and I will name them, Jesse Jenkins at Princeton University, by Mark Jacobson at Stanford University, are talking about two, three terawatts of additional capacity, you know, double or tripling the scale, the amount of stuff, the amount of steel we have to put in the ground in order to meet electric demand. It's insane from the get-go, and yet these are the people who have the ear of the the policymakers in Washington and they are being law they are being just flooded the these the companies that want to build all this stuff are looking at just insane some insane amounts of cash and who's with them who's joining with big business big banks and big law firms and oh, so yeah. this is the the I, I i i'll use the word conspiracy because it is a conspiracy because the the big money right. interests are trying to make all this happen even though it's terrible for the grid and terrible for consumer you know the energy this also can be described as pork pork barrel. I just wanted to point that out because I grew up in Chicago where we talked a lot about what Daly was doing. And my mother told me that, you know, she was basically a Democrat, but she said she wouldn't. She volunteered with the independent voters of Illinois because she didn't want to be signed up with the Daly machine. And what I'm trying to say is that I, 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 I heard about pork barrel politics over the kitchen table when I was a little girl. And so every now and again, when somebody explains how much we're going to have to invest in tripling the grid, I think I've seen this. I know about this. Okay, I'll be quiet for a while here. Oh, no, I just, this is why you guys are here. I I, I would (laughs) hug both of you in a group therapy hug if we could. Uh, But but Robert and and Meredith, uh, energy hypocrisy drives me nuts. You know, when you you sit back and and a printing money, Robert, you nailed it. Printing money just drives me nuts. Reuters, uh, I believe it was four or five months ago, wrote a beautiful article. You mentioned the universities and the universities have their own coal plants. I'm not sure if you read that article, but it was you probably wrote it. I'm sorry if I'm stealing your material. I steal all your material and I pretend it's mine. But, you know, it, it, and you sit back and you look. 
how many campuses across the U.S. have coal plants that are not efficient and they're old? The new coal plants at least have better scrubbers and stuff. But do you what do you guys think about energy hypocrisy? I'm against it. <laughs> Next. <laughs> we don't we have a um we have a giant oil burning uh system on the Dartmouth campus which is not far from us and yep. uh, you can I mean I you can smell it sometimes I mean because oil I don't know it just it, it doesn't it's a pretty old system and it doesn't burn all that clean let me jump in for a second, Stu, since you brought up yep. coal. And I think this is an important point. It's something that, I mean, yep. we think coal is dead. And, you know, Michael Bloomberg gave $100 million to the Sierra Club a few years ago to fund their Beyond Coal campaign. And now that's become the Beyond Carbon campaign with half a billion dollars. Speaking of hypocrites, yep. uh, because uh, Michael Bloomberg's private jets last year burned something on the order of 300,000 gallons of jet fuel, by the way. He owns wow. a dozen houses, by the way. Uh, but he's funding all these climate uh, uh, groups because I guess he's seeking some kind of indulgence. Um, uh, but nevertheless, the point with, I think that's key to understand. This is uh, for our podcast listeners. I hate to interrupt. This is Mr. Bloomberg. And I'm talking, uh, no, <laughs> you, uh, you want to go on Robert Bryce's, uh, the power, uh, hungry power, power, hungry podcast? podcast. Anytime mayor, come on down. We'll have you on. We'll talk about your jets and how much you're, yeah, never mind. Uh, he's denying it. Sorry. Okay, that's fine. But, <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But the coal issue is one that's key, Stuart, because the amount of coal-fired capacity around the world continues to grow. It has not slowed down. I, you know, I thought yep. for years that I was misapprehension that China and India were their coal consumption was was consumption was leveling out. No. The latest data and the, and the Chinese government just announced in the first quarter, I think Greenpeace reported it, that there's something like 28 gigawatts of new coal-fired capacity were, were permitted by the Chinese provinces in the first quarter of this year. So to put that into context, last year in the U.S., we closed about 12 gigawatts of coal-fired capacity. So the closures of coal-fired capacity in the United States are not even matching the growth of the coal-fired capacity that's being built in China. And right. coal consumption last year grew by almost 1%, according to the latest IEA data. So, you know, this all of this effort that is being, and we're talking ultimately trillions of dollars, and we've already spent almost a trillion dollars on wind and solar in the U.S. since 2014, according to Bloomberg New Energy Finance. I'm not saying it's being wasted, but I will say it's not being effective in ultimately reducing overall global emissions because the U.S. is not the main, not the most important story in the emissions anymore. It's China and India. Oh, yeah. And uh, India has just passed China for most populous. And they're building um, and they're building coal plants, as is China. And so is Vietnam and Japan. I mean, you know, this idea that the U.S., we're going to solve climate change. And we're, if only we spend enough money in the Inflation Reduction Act, it's just a misapprehension of the what is happening globally. This is a global challenge. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so adamantly pro-nuclear. The U.S. should be leading the world in deployment of new nuclear. That is the only way we're going to make significant dents in the overall global coal consumption is if we offer a technology that can displace coal at scale. You bet. And Meredith, I, and I want to throw this out here because modular reactors, it seems to me that 
putting a modular reactor using the infrastructure that's already there makes a lot of sense. When you shut down a coal plant or you have a modular reactor, can you guys give me your thoughts on that? Because that makes sense to me. And I I don't. It makes a lot of sense to me. And I have to admit that I have a a friend, uh, uh, Rod Adams, who is a joined uh, Nucleation Capital to fund uh, small reactor, uh, innovative reactors. And another thing about, and then I have another friend (laughs) who lives near us, Robert Hargraves, and he is a a co-founder of a company to make modular reactors, which will be uh, built in a shipyard and then delivered by ship and plugged into the land. So the, the people who are buying the power, they don't have to deal with the um, the running of the uh, reactor or anything. They just plug in. And when, when it's time to uh, refurbish, uh, these are small reactors. You can just take the ship away and get another ship with some more or, you know, and so forth. And one of the other things is that they, he, he really, uh, he has a, a, co-work, a co-founder, Jack Devaney, who worked in a Korean shipyard. And And Jack is very clear on the idea that the equivalent of built in a facility versus the equivalent of stick built, stick built is going to be much more expensive and and the quality control is not going to be as good. And that's how we build our reactors here. But Bob Hargraves hopes for reactors, Thorcon reactors that can then that can just be barged up to a site and connected. Wow. Um, I, I was lucky enough to interview Thomas Jam from Copenhagen Atomics. He's the CEO there. And Copenhagen Atomics has the modular reactors that they are just started. And by next year, they should be able to roll out 365 modular reactors a year. Wow. Where they, they are the size of a semi truck and they are going out. Uh, and I, I'm like, where do I sign up on that and get them some uh, that would to me, you can't invest money in print money without inflation. Yeah, that to me seems like a good investment for printing money. I'm just kidding on that. Well, I'll, I'll jump in on the SMR issue because I think it's uh, you know, there's no doubt that it's there. There's some promising technologies and a bunch of different companies. Uh, Meredith mentioned Thorcon, uh, Terrestrial Energy in Canada, TerraPower here in the U.S., X Energy nice. here in the U.S., which has a a very intriguing gas-fired, uh, I'm sorry, gas-cooled reactor design that Dow Chemical is uh, is is going uh, planning to use you, in one of their chemical plants on the You said coast. gas gas cooled? Yeah, yeah high temperature yeah. gas. Right. Oh, so, wow. yeah. Yeah. Um, one of those has already been deployed in, in China, in Shandong province. Uh, let, let me see. In late 21, it started. Nice. Um, but let's be clear. And again, this is one of the things that I uh, leaving Japan made me much more sober about nuclear, the future of nuclear in the U.S. And I'm adamantly pro-nuclear. I've said the same thing for 13 years. Natural gas to nuclear. This is the way forward. This is the no regrets policy we should be following. But we, but to make that happen, we it's going to require sustained bipartisan support in Congress. Why? Because the nuclear industry requires robust government backing. It doesn't. You can't just leave it to the private sector. And this is one of the big problems facing nuclear in America. I, I'm not glib about it. I'm, I'm absolutely in favor of nuclear, but we have to be very clear-eyed when we talk about SMRs and about deploying them. The problems are, I, I think, very clear. There are three of them. First is the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. This agency is intractable. They are taking 
taking way too long to permit new projects. Oh. Uh, new Scale uh, uh, got uh, another uh, promising company, a modular reactor company. It took them six years and five hundred million dollars with the NRC to get their design the permitting for their further reactor design. Not building it. We're not talking about half a billion to build it. We're talking about half a billion to permit it. Robert, can you say that again? That's frightening. So new scale power, they have, and there, and here's the other part that makes this even more, um, uh, I would say, uh, sobering, is that right. New Scale's design is a light water design. So uh, light water design. So their design for their reactor is really just a shrunk down model of the, the kind of reactors we have deployed all over the U.S. It took them six years and five hundred million dollars to get approval for their project for their permit design at the NRC. Now they have to build it, right? They haven't done that yet either. So, wow. uh, the, so what are the key hurdles? Back to those points. Well, it's the NRC. The regulatory regime is onerous, and and I don't see a quick fix there. And it likely will require an act of Congress to get that fix in place. Second, the supply chain. Who's going to build it and where? And I agree with Meredith wholeheartedly. And I think the shipyard reactor designs are really promising because most of the world's population lives in coastal cities. So power ships are an incredibly important uh, uh, opportunity. And I've seen power ships myself in, in Lebanon. But then finally is the fuel issue. And this is the one that now, because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, is much more difficult to solve. So yes, these SMRs, man, they're cool. I, you know, I'd like, you know, like you. Well, but many of them use HALU, high assay, low enriched uranium. Who makes HALU? The Russians. They're not our friends. They were never our friends. So where are we going to get the fuel? Who is going to do the enrichment? Where are we going to put the mines? How is this going to happen in the United States when we have a Congress that is generally and objects to industrial policy of any kind? How is this going right. to happen? We have to be very clear-eyed about what this means and what the challenges are. Wow. Talk about second-order uh, effects uh, of how you make that comment. Uh, you hit me in, in the back of the head with a shovel, Robert. I mean, there's a lot of things that people need to think about out there. And that permitting thing is terrible. That's awful. Well, yeah, this it is, is, not it is really bad. It is really bad. And even when they try to uh, uh, make a ruling, for example, uh, they made a ruling that, that NRC had to spend only two years uh, setting up a permit. Uh, what, what, what NRC did, I, I think they did this with Oklo. They said, oh, yes, you have you. We, we reviewed it. Uh, we take two years. Uh, but what we're we're not saying yes and we're not saying no. We're just gonna say it's incomplete and go back and do it again. So the two years is basically we can do as many two years as we feel like. And uh it's unfortunate, but that is exactly how they are uh, uh approaching everything. But even if Congress makes a rule, they know how to get around it. They're they were they spent all their time figuring out how to get around such rules. So the Congress spends very little time trying to set them up. Right. Well, Robert it reminds me of the old adage from lobbyists, right? Oh, that's not a one Lexus bill. That's a two Lexus bill, right? You know, we're, <laughs> we're going to make sure that to get this one passed, it's going to take a while. Well, so, but I see that it, it, at work at the NRC. It's an independent agency. You have a lot of people there mm -hmm. who I'm sure as a whole, they're conscientious and hardworking, but there is no motivation for them to approve projects, quite the opposite. And yes. so, and, and because it's an independent agency, it's not like somebody can crack heads. And, 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 or Congress can really hold their feet to the fire, except through budgetary things and other, but the other point that Ray Rothrock made that I thought was really important to understand about the NRC and its dysfunction is that it doesn't have a CEO. 
It has a huge staff and there are five commissioners, but there's nobody who sits at the top and says, you must, you will, and you'll do it now. So it's a system that has kind of bred this unaccountability. So there are many problems within the regulatory regime that have to be resolved if we're going to approve new designs and get them deployed at scale. But we right now don't have that capability and we can complain about the NRC, but even if we solve that, it's only part of the pro- only part of the challenge that we face in deploying new nuclear. Well, you know, um, we as we sit back, guys, I just I really enjoy hanging with you. You guys are just rock stars. You guys are doing exactly what we need to do is have an open dialogue with everybody. I don't care if you're wind, solar, nuclear. We need to have an op- open dialogue on how to better humanity as we go forward on these things. I'm going to uh, just ask a thing. How did you and Meredith, Robert, how did you and Meredith uh, meet? And she's been on your podcast five times. You're as much of a fan of Meredith as I am, and I'm a fan of you. But how did you meet Meredith? Uh, Bob Hargraves introduced us. I mean, I've been reading I've been reading uh, Robert's books, of course, and and so forth. But but um, and when I began to write uh, my uh, own book, I. Uh, Yes, A Question of Power. Excellent book. And it's out in paperback now. So everybody buy it, please. Yes, that's where I was going. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. But anyway, uh, I asked asked, uh, uh, Robert Hargraves if he could write a, uh, read my book ahead of time and and write uh, an endorsement for it for the front of the book. And he said, sure. And he said, I said, you know, I wish I could get Robert Bryce to do that. And he says, well, I know Robert. So that's how we met. Well, you know, I want to give you a shout out, Robert. I just bought uh, that book uh, and it's the paperback forward on it. And I was getting ready. I have your other books and I just applaud you. Uh, All of your books will be in my show notes as we publish this out. You are truly in anybody wanting to know the true story. Also, Meredith, your your book will be in the show notes as well, too. And uh, uh, Robert, hold that book up again. I want to just make sure everybody sees that. It's a question of power. The paperback will be out May 16th. Um, so it's uh, the paper, the hardback came out three years ago because of COVID and the rest of it, we had a little detour, but I did write a new preface for the book, about 5,000 words, uh, updating what's happened since then, of course, right. uh, talking about the coal market, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, why we need nuclear land use conflicts, um, uh, just revising or not. And I, I didn't change any of the existing text, but added a, a, a new preface to kind of bring it up to date. But um, I, I want to also talk, Stu, just a little bit about, since your, your podcast is Energizing America and talking about where we are, I think it's also important to put, we've only really focused on electricity and we talked about nuclear and, and we've talked about wind and solar. What's important to remember as well is that how difficult and how slow it will be for the U.S. and the rest of the world to move off of hydrocarbons. And I want to point out this whole thing about the energy transition. We hear about this. We heard this phrase all the time. And I presented last week in Louisville on, on this very issue and speaking at University of Northern Iowa in a couple of days. You know, this idea that we're in the midst of some big energy transition, we aren't, in fact. But we're at, we're adding a lot of renewables to our gener- or to our, our production. But we're not displacing significant quantities of hydrocarbons. So just one quick point here about if we just look at the U.S., in 2022, just the growth, I repeat, just the growth in natural gas consumption, which grew 5% last year in the U.S., which is a big increase, just right. the growth in consumption of gas last year was greater than the growth in wind and solar combined. 
So this idea that we're suddenly going to switch and we're going to quit using oil, we're going to quit using coal, and we're, you know, these just stop oil hooligans, you know, oh, we're just going to pivot and stop doing this. No, we're not. And, and if you try to do that, you will crater society and, and end up with mass starvation, mass dislocation, uh, 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 civil unrest on levels we've never seen before. And yet we're in the grips of this kind of mania that, uh, uh, that, that is being spearheaded, and I will name them. People like Bill McKibben, who are leading these groups and saying, oh, we're just going to quit using oil. We're going to quit using hydrocarbons. And we're going to do it right away. And we're going to go to all renewables. We have to be, again, very sober about the challenge that we face and the irreplaceability, in many cases, for hydrocarbons. And we have to be very clear about that because it's easy to vilify these sources of energy, but they are incredibly important to how our society works. And the transition away from them will take decades, if not centuries. You bet. And uh, by the way, uh, Robert, great, great points. Um, the amount of money being invested in the companies in oil and gas right now are trillions short of just meeting decline curves. So what you're hearing is uh, OPEC was saying that, oh, by the way, and the IEA is saying, oh, by the way, oil demand is still going to be up for a while. You nailed it, Robert. Uh, I didn't mean to give you a compliment, but boy, you just nailed it. It's going to be around a while. And so, and, and that's a function of scale, Stu. I mean, it's just a function of scale. It's not, and physics, of course, right? You know, the energy density of these fuels is, is the key. It's why, you know, there's no conspiracy. Why do we use oil? Because it's damn near irreplaceable. When it right. comes to it cost of, you know, it comes to cost, ease of handling, amount of energy density, you know, ease of tankage, all of these things. That's why we use it. And so, right. you know, the idea, oh, we're going to run our jets on fuel cells or we're going to, you know, California is, is, is banning the use of diesel, diesel trucks. What are you doing? I've seen, I'm an old man. I'm 63. <laughs> I've seen three fuel cells in my entire life. And yet they say, we're going to quit using diesel engines. What are you talking about, man? I mean, you know, where are you going to get the magnets, the minerals and the metals? It just, none of this is being thought about in a, in a kind of holistic way. No. And, uh, you know, as we sit here and talk about educators and we talk about thought leaders, Meredith, where can people get involved and help uh, or learn more? I mean, what are resources that you use in order to try to, if somebody was out there saying, hey, uh, where do I learn more about this? And then I'll ask the same of, of Robert and then we'll ask what's coming around the corner for both of you. Uh, but what would be some resources for people to get involved, Meredith? Well, I think that, I'm going to start by uh, free and inexpensive resources. And I would say that uh, in, in free and inexpensive resources, you should be following Utility Dive. You should be following Power Magazine if you can get a free uh, online subscription. Um, and uh, you should be following Robert Bryce's Substack. And there are other Substacks, too. Uh, I just feel like... Um, I'm trying to uh, start with the free ones. There are uh, other thing, other things such as, um, well, there are a lot of really excellent substacks. There's one that I like. It's very um, kind of cranky. It's called Green Leap Forward. Yeah, <laughs> the idea is that, that, that the, all this green energy stuff is the equivalent of a, a Mao's great leap forward it will have the same negative effect on the health and well-being of the people in society and then uh irena slav uh has got um her uh substack and those are those are either free or or very inexpensive i am a great fan of doomberg 
But you can't really say Duneburg is inexpensive. It's $300 a year. And, you know, it really cost me some mental thing. If I said, do you really want to spend $300 a year on a green chicken? And the answer is yes. But, <laughs> and now what you might have people, they say, what do you mean green chicken? I'm going to say that... Um, that Doomberg uh, is actually a group of people and they don't show their face on, 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 uh, they're anonymous and the, the, the their spokes chicken is a, a green cartoon chicken. So that, that's a, kind of fun, but I think it's know, brilliant. You can, you can go a long way if you were, re- if you're reading, uh, Robert Bryce, Arena Slav, uh, Utility Dive. And then for your own personal, I think we're all live somewhere. Okay, so wherever you live, try to follow your local uh, distribution utility and your local RTO if you have an RTO. Or if you don't have an RTO, follow your local PUC. You want to know about what's happening. And I assure you, everything that happens is so long-winded and so complicated that it's not going to show up in your newspaper. They don't have the room. You have to look on the web for that kind of information. But you can educate yourself on the web for free about your own locality. Nice. And and Robert, uh, we've been sitting there yakking at you. Uh, you know, Meredith is probably you and I. Mer- Meredith and I are out here being your cheerleaders and everything. But uh, I've had the pleasure of also, uh, Irene has been on your podcast, uh, if I remember correctly. And yeah. fortunately, I talk to uh, Irina every month uh, from Bulgaria, and she is just a classy lady. Do you have anything else to add for education, Robert? Because you both are true uh, treasures uh, in the industry. Well, shucks. I mean, I feel like we have a little mutual admiration society here. So I'll I'll uh, I'll, I'll second what uh, Meredith said on those resources. I'd add Roger Pilkey Jr. I think he's a great, okay. uh, 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 an important and independent thinker when it comes to these issues. Um, right. Particularly when it comes to climate issues and the IPCC reporting. And he's been a. Con- I, I'm I'm not. I'll say he's a contrarian. Only he's a contrarian in that he's not. He's not. He he is not one of these. Uh, 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 people who's just going along with the orthodoxy. He is oh, a yeah. very independent thinker, and uh, he brings mathematics to it. And he has a background in his PhD. His PhD was in political science, but he has an undergrad and a master's, I believe, in math. So he's very clever. He's very clever, and he's very good at, at, at explaining what's going on with numbers, with graphics. So I'd recommend Roger. Um, but I would also say more broadly, what is key uh, to people, ordinary people, to be understand to understand what is going on, you have to know some basic math and basic physics. That is <laughs> that is critical. And and let's be clear, why why do we have so much bad policy? Well, our, who are our policymakers? They're all lawyers. Well, why are they lawyers? Because they couldn't couldn't do the math to get into engineering school. I mean, that's, that's just the fact. But the but so why do they do what they do? Well, because it sounds good. Well, why do they pass all this stuff? Because it sounds good. But if you were an engineer and you knew some of the math and the physics behind this, you would say, well, that's crazy town, right? We're not going to do it that way. So, but more specifically, and I joke around a little bit here, but I'd say those things very, you know, seriously. General public, the American public in general, is uh, is innumerate and illiterate in science. They don't understand wow. basic math. They don't understand basic physics. So you have to be able to understand what the numbers are. And this is one of the things I pride myself and work very hard at is to make the numbers and the and the and the physics simple, right? So more specifically, understand what power density is. Why is the why is it a problem for wind and solar? It's because their power density is so low. I don't care where you put your wind turbine, the power density is one watt per square meter. Where you put your solar panel, it's going to be about 10 watts per square meter. A nuclear power plant, though, 2,000 watts per square meter. 
So wow. why do I care about nuclear? Why do I promote nuclear? Yes, climate change, sure. But I want to spare land for nature. I'm a bird watcher, an avid bird watcher. I have been for 30 years. Why in the hell are we putting up wind turbines that are killing some of our most iconic wildlife in the name of climate change? It's absolute lunacy. And the companies that are doing it are getting away with it. So there is an anti-environmentalism that is occurring because the general public doesn't understand what is really going on. So I would encourage, you know, um, yeah, self-promotion, robertbryce.substack.com. But read my books, particularly my fourth book, Power Hungry, is a, a tutorial on power density. My latest book, A Question of Power, I talk about power density and why it matters. You have to start with some foundation. And that's one of the reasons why Meredith, I think, has been so successful. She's a chemist. She's this woman, you know, I, I joke and I say, well, how did this, you know, this diminutive Jewish grandmother from Vermont gain all this. Well, she's, a, she's a genius at technical stuff. She's been, this is how she's trained. So she brings right. this background to be able to help people understand it because she has this background in understanding what this thing is really about. And that's been one of the reasons wow. why she's had the success that she's had. But she and I and all these other people, you can't just do that. You, you know, people, if they care, they have to put some time into it. They have to understand what power density is and they have to make that effort. And then the other thing they can do is talk to their neighbors and say, well, you know, here's what I think it is and try and educate, not just the policymakers and attend the meetings and do the rest of it, but help understand other people understand right. these issues. I wanted to say one more thing that is yes. I, I probably should have said earlier, and that is when I was talking about free uh, ability, free uh, ways to educate yourself. I would say that uh, Robert Bryce's podcast and 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 your podcasts just do are uh, are very important uh, because the thing is that it's uh, it's a, it's not intimidating. You're listening to two people talk, two educated people, people who know what they're talking about, and you don't have to feel um, intimidated. The number of times I. Have have tried to explain something to someone, and I, I, I really attempt to be uh, just, just a person trying to explain something. I am just a person trying to, and and I get back. Well, I'm not a scientist, so I don't know, you know. And and you don't want to have the feeling that only scientists can can understand things. So that's one of the wonderful things about podcasts is that in the conversation you begin to understand things that you wouldn't perhaps if you were reading reading a book uh, or even a, a well-written blog. Boy, well said, guys. We got about one more minute here. And I tell you, you guys made my day. And uh, we are going to be publishing this thing out everywhere. We're going to be tagging you. And uh, I just really appreciate both of you so much. Last word going around. Each of you got about a minute and we're off and running. Tell us how to get a hold of you. Meredith, ladies first. Oh, you can get a hold of me uh, pretty easily. Um, I have a, a website called Meredith Anquin all one word.com. I have a uh, Twitter name at Meredith Angwin, all one word. I have a Gmail address, Meredith Angwin, <laughs> all one word. I think it's pretty, pretty straightforward. So I'm always eager to hear from you. And I have blog posts at my website. And Robert, last word, you sure. bring us well, in. I'm, I'm, I'm ubiquitous. I'm on TikTok. I'm on YouTube, LinkedIn, uh, Instagram. I, you can't escape me. I'm the king of all media. Um, uh, <laughs> but seriously, I'm on Substack. I'm working hard to grow my Substack, robertbryce.substack.com. The website, robertbryce.com. You can find out my my movie, my film, Juice, How Electricity Explains the World. We didn't talk about that. Uh, that's at juicethemovie.com. So uh, I'm easy to find. But uh, it's been a pleasure, a real pleasure to me to be on with Meredith, who I've, whose work I've admired for a long time. And, uh, um, and, and I think that what I'll end with this, 
I think what Meredith and I share, and I'm proud to say this, is that we have a purpose and we've found that in our dotage, maybe, that we we found a place where we are able to try and broaden the conversation and educate people. And that's what we care about. And that we hope that I, I'm speaking for her now and maybe a little presumptuous, but that our work will have an impact and that can, can drive some, uh, some sane policy because we are in danger of making things uh, we, we are, I think in many cases, making our grid less reliable, less affordable, less resilient, and we need a big dose of sanity and sobriety here to make sure we course correct. And it's one of the reasons why I think Meredith's work has been so important. So uh, I'll, uh, uh, at the risk of being pompous and speaking for her, I'll just uh, make that point that I encourage your listeners to, to read her book and, and to educate themselves because these issues are critically important. Absolutely. Well, thanks guys very much. And uh, we will see you guys next time on the Energy News Beat. Uh, my name's Stu Turley, CEO. Have a great one.